sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it is Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, your home for the rumor and innuendo and everything that you ever wanted to know but were afraid to ask. About this- reggae. That's right. <laughs> Almost a this- two-part episode. Like, we're, right. this is kind of our first official two-parter. Right, I right. I know it. I missed I missed part one and you had Phil on and so this is part two and I'm well, we, super excited. We talked all about Chris Blackwell and how Chris Blackwell found a figurehead in Bob Marley to bring Jamaican music into the rock hemisphere. He was like hanging out with Steve Winwood and he was like, I, I get this. How can I take the music that I love from Jamaica uh and and make it resonate with people the same way that Spencer Davis group does and that's literally the this project he goes on he tries it a couple times uh, and doesn't get it right until he meets Bob Marley and then obviously we know how that goes but in that conversation one thing that I said is that I think there's three ingredients to this right I think one you have to have the right figurehead and then you have to get the other big names in the game to play along and that's what happens when Led Zeppelin does Jamaica which are you are you a fan of that song I am and I, I remember the first time I heard Robert Plant say that People in America call it Dire Maker. I and totally then, thought it was Dire Maker for like 10 years. We all we all did. And so <laughs> it's why he says the Americans say it that way. So a- absolutely. And uh, I love how this is the holy. The whole record's great. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then I said the third ingredient is there has to be something that takes the music into another realm. It has to be bigger than just music, right? Because otherwise it can be like any of these trends that come and go in rock and roll where you go, oh, that sounds very 80s, or hey, that sounds very 90s, right? But now, all of those decades have a lot of ska influence. You have everything from the police in the early, you know, the clash in the 70s, the police in the 80s. You've got Sublime in the 90s. you got 21 Pilots in 2022, right? All of these things, Sublime, big, deep oh reggae gosh. influences. Yeah, Sublime, big enough that they can tour without their lead singer that's deceased. Right? I mean... Right. But the third ingredient, I said, for this to happen is this big event, something that has to push this past the point of, hey, it's cool and it's music into its its legend and its lifestyle. And I proposed that the event that does that is the assassination attempt in 1976 on Bob Marley. How much of that story do you know? It's like one of the first things that I had you know, it was like this infamous thing and I heard about it real early on, but then I never knew what really happened. And then I had that false thing in my head that he died from an assassination. Dude, me too. So I I love you for admitting that first because I thought, I even wrote it in the notes, that I thought he died from an assassination attempt. Right. Like I I thought he was assassinated. And this is sort of what I'm saying. Like it becomes bigger than life. And all of the stories around this have become bigger in life. We're going to get into this core like rumor. I mean, we talk about rumor and innuendo, this core conspiracy theory that sits at the center of the assassination attempt. But to do any and all of this, we got to talk about Jamaican history. And then we also just really should talk about our personal reggae stories because we haven't talked about that, like about our own personal finding of reggae. So tell me yours. My first job, I, I before I was 16, I was 15 and I could still drive a car. 
um, and I I was able to I worked at this grocery store not not the Kroger, but a little bitty store a bit in my Kroger, home, which is totally messed up. Um, they had roasted chicken that was mm. delicious. Oh yeah. Um, and what I did is I sat groceries and I took I physically took them out to the car to like uh-huh, little yeah. ladies and stuff. Yeah. But there was a girl that was a cashier and she's a little older than me. And then one one night she asked me to go to like a party, a field party, like a bonfire party. Mm. And we got in the car and she threw on Bob Marley's greatest hits. And it was stuck in my brain like the first time I heard, you know, the Beatles or yeah. anything. She sang oh. it. Oh, that's beautiful. That yeah, yeah. You, you I understand why you would then immediately rush out and buy your own copy. Doesn't sound as good when she's not there singing. Oh yeah, yeah. Because it was super fun, and I remember asking her about it, and it's like, oh, it's just Bob Marley's greatest hits. How about you? It, it, was, it wasn't a crush that got me into it, but I, I do think it was probably around the same time. My best pal Lee, still a good friend of mine, I remember going through his CDs. This dates me a little bit. Uh, the big books, remember those things? And I do sure remember do. him like that being present in there and hearing it, and you know, Lee liked some of the same extracurricular activities that Bob and his Rastafarian pals liked. And so he would be in his blue Explorer and you would, you would see the windows were rolled up and you would hear the reggae beat and you wouldn't know what was happening. Right. So, I mean, that that was probably my preacher's kid entrance into understanding Bob Marley and reggae. And I mean, for me, it's like Bob Marley is reggae. I understand that it is bigger than that, but to Americans in a lot of ways, Bob Marley is reggae. And that's one of the things that was confirmed for me in doing this research. Like that's I'm not alone in that. Like he is he is the export that came to yeah. us. Yeah, and and for some people it's like the the idea that coke is the the word for all of soda. Like <laughs> Bob, Bob Marley, Marley is the is, word. <laughs> because because people don't know who Jimmy Cliff is. <laughs> Because people people don't know who any anyone else in the genre is. Yeah, you know, well, we we talked of- about we talked about Jimmy Cliff a little bit last week because Chris Blackwell's experiment in getting this music to stick in America starts with Jimmy Cliff and it doesn't work. And uh, when they part ways within a week, the the whalers walk in asking for money, and and the rest is history. So let's get into this. Let's get into the Jamaican history a little bit. Do you cool. have you been to Jamaica? No, but you have, right, I have, sir? I have quite a few times, but here are some cliff notes. Columbus gets to the island of Jamaica, It's you know, and it becomes Spanish in the 1400s. The British conquer it in the middle of the 1600s, and then in 1962, the British Parliament will end up granting Jamaica independence, and this guy named Alexander Bustamante will become their first prime minister, and that 62. dude... 62. So, yeah, I mean, pretty new in terms of things. That dude is the head of a political party that he started in 1943, which is the Jamaican Labor Party. That becomes important. We're going to call it the JLP, the Jamaican Labor Party. Since that time, Jamaica has pretty much always been a place of political conflict. There is this very long-standing feud between right-wing and left-wing elements in the country. There's the Jamaican Labor Party, and there's the People's National Party. And these two groups... So we're going to call them the PNP. So the JLP and the PNP. These two groups have fought for control of the island for years, and everything's just gotten sort of violent and deadly. The Jamaican Labor Party is conservative-ish. It's market-driven economy, personal responsibility. People's National Party, Democratic Socialist. Believes in things like political democracy and socially owned economy. Now, each side believes the other is being controlled by foreign interests. So the JLP typically is said to be backed by the CIA, 
and the PNP is said to have been backed by the Soviet Union and Cuba. Wow. So, country, newly on its own in the early 60s, the JLP at this point, the conservative faction, has the power, and they decided they don't want to lose that power, like so often happens when people have power, right? So, Bustamante has this guy in his administration named D.C. Tavares, and he has, he has a title... It's like Minister of Housing or something like that. But basically, this guy comes up with this idea that he can keep the party in power by geographically controlling how people vote. So what he does is build low-cost housing and then stocks it with people who will pledge allegiance to his political party. Wow. It's like statutory, weird, gerrymandering... Yeah, yeah, it's like gerrymandering, but like from the very beginning, before the buildings are built. And so they simultaneously will run off a bunch of Rastafarians, too. So that becomes part of the tension, right? So what people run off, pushed into the mountains, and then they build all these high-rises and fill them with people who need housing and say, listen, all you got to do is, when we tell you to vote, vote. Here's an interesting side note. Voter turnout in Jamaica during this time is crazy high, like 80 to 90%. Like, if we had that sort of voter turnout in America, it would be insane. The reason it's so high is that it's the currency that keeps people safe. Uh. This is such a big deal. There is a term for it. It's a, This type of housing that you get in return for voting is called a garrison. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you've heard the term. If, if yeah. you want to get really deep into the history and the politics, <laughs> I've used an academic paper as a source. It's written by Beverly Mullings, Department of Geography and Planning at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. It is in the show notes. Super hot right now. But what what you need to know for the purposes of this story, one political party, if they try this tactic, which the JLP did, the other one's going to try it when they have power. So when People's National Party, PNP, wins power eventually, they'll do the exact same thing. And so now you have physical landscapes that embody the political dissection that splits Jamaica in half. Look, oh, it's so terrible. It's awful, but it, I, I think painting this picture will help you understand this story a hundred times better. So I'm going to read from this paper. Defined as geographically discrete fortressed urban areas marked by poverty, gang violence, political manipulation, and confrontational relationships with law enforcement institutions. That's a mouthful. Garrison communities are spatial expressions of state power and community survival in Jamaica. Through practices like election rigging, extortion, and regulated access to scarce benefits like municipal contracts, garrison communities become sites of extreme spatial control whose borders are maintained through violence. So violence, what, what's that mean? To give you an idea of the kind of violent control we're talking about here, here's another piece in the show notes. It's from the Jamaica Observer, and it's a historical piece about a couple of dudes known as Burry Boy and Feather Mop, which is actually the name of our first podcast, weirdly. <laughs> Basically, (laughs) it's not. I actually feel now I feel the need to be like, actually, I I promise you, I did not (laughs) name us after Jamaican gangsters. That would be wrong on so many levels. Uh, So they're basically the henchmen for the People's National Party, the PNP. Yeah, PNP. They're both going to die in 75, violent deaths. But before they're killed, and this is just a single example, they're said to be behind the chopping of party member Trevor Monroe. For the record, the chopping of someone is what it sounds like. Monroe received chops all over his body and was seriously injured. Uh, Burry Boy, Feathermop, and their gang also accused of other stuff like 
they stormed the opposing political party's headquarters, the JLP, stormed their headquarters, stabbed a 70-year-old watchman, slashed a research officer, and then smashed all the furniture, telephones, and typewriters and tore up all the documents. Here's the crazy part. Like something out of a movie, these dudes and their accomplices would do this on black Hondas. Black Honda motorcycles. That, that, oh, wow. Like out of a movie with Keanu Reeves. Like the Warriors. Sure. <laughs> Jamaica. <laughs> they, it's, so, not, it's not New York. This was their calling card. They would show up on matching hogs. So why am I telling you all of this Jamaican history? He's in this political, volatile climate, you know. Right. Well, in 76, Bob, I mean, Bob Marley's hit the big time at this point and he is a Jamaican celebrity and now both of these political parties want to curry his favor so he's in this really weird position he's like the swing vote on Survivor he's got both of these these parties coming to him begging him trying to make him appear to be part of their group because it will benefit them <laughs> if we know anything about Bob he loves unity he loves peace he's a Rastafarian right he wants to smoke pot and commune with Ja, and this is getting in the way of that. The PNP is in power at the time, and things are intense. And he decides that he wants to throw a benefit concert. He gets this idea because like a year or two before, Stevie Wonder had done this. He had come to Jamaica and done a benefit concert. I believe it was like specifically for children's charities, what he did. But Bob's like, let's bring together the people of Jamaica and say, listen, we're not that different. But here's what happens. When the concert is announced, the sitting leader of the country makes an announcement. We're going to have an election a couple days after the concert. Very sneaky. This guy knows what he's up to. And the minute he does this, the opposition is pissed because it looks like Bob Marley is doing a pre-election concert for the sitting for this political party for right, the sitting right. government a few years ago reggae historian and archivist roger steffens put this oral history together which i borrowed from very heavily for this episode called so much things to say and in this text he spends a lot of time talking to this guy stephen davis who wrote one of the key biographies on bob marley and has studied the subject of the shooting in particular very extensively and this is a, a quote from stephen davis he says obviously to do a concert like this it might be a bit naive to say that there were no politics involved Because even to mount a small concert in Kingston, you had to have approval of the government. To do a large concert like Bob wanted to do, it all had to be done almost directly through the prime minister's office. Right. They they also talked to West Coast Director of Publicity for Island Records at the time, this guy named Jeff Walker. He'll admit that even though the Whalers tried to divorce this all from politics, at some point it even gets specifically announced that the Ministry of Culture is the co-sponsor. So these guys, I mean, the government immediately is like, cool, we're going to own this. Yeah. This is a quote from Jeff. Bob was conscious that it could be interpreted politically. I think there was a certain amount of that he was willing to go along with, but he didn't want to be swept into something where he was going to be used. I believe that the political forces more or less were behind the scenes and manipulating that event into something that might be helpful to them in the long run. Yeah. And what a, in retrospect, like, you know, what, not a great idea. And here's the thing that complicates it. Smile Jamaica is what they decide to call this concert, but it's, that's also the name of a Bob Marley song at the time. And that song had its own controversy because some people thought it was sort of written as a tourism play for the government. Mm. The best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. Like if 
that was what it really was about. Like, I'd feel freaking gross. Right. And so imagine if you're the opposing political party, too, and you think that this guy is now basically writing tourism jingles for the current sitting government. Because it's never about the unified country, right? It's about the two separate sides of the coin. Yeah. The other thing that makes all of this really tricky is that Bob is not really claiming a side. He's sort of moving in both spaces. He'd had a little bit of past affiliation with the PNP, but because he's so big, like I said, they're trying to curry favor with him. And did you watch the Netflix remastered Who Shot the Sheriff documentary? Yeah, I did. Okay. Just to kind of learn more about it. Right, right, right. Great episode. It's like an hour long. I, I definitely suggest it if you're interested in this subject. They make a case in that documentary to say that Bob was always trying to exist in both of these political parties, right? And right. but he is definitely physically moving between physical spaces. And remember, we laid this out, right? There's these garrisons. If you live in one of the garrisons of the JLP, you don't go to the PMP garrisons, really, and vice versa. But Bob is doing both, and this creates a couple things. One, it creates people just being irritated, right? That he's kind of crossing these lines. But it also makes his movements and schedule more apparent to more people on the island. If I only move about one part of the island, only one part of the island knows anything about me. But if I'm moving all over the island and I'm famous, people are actively seeing me come and go and they know my schedule and they know the way I act and participate. There's also some stuff in that documentary about how Bob is really confusing sort of the social structure in Jamaica because at one point someone says in that documentary that they they said, hey man, you know, how are you, you know, why are you becoming one of them or something? You know, like, why are you, yeah. this Rastafarian, going to be around all these hoity-toity, high-level people um, who have a very different experience than most of Jamaican residents, right? And he said, oh, no, 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 no. Like, he said something to the extent of, like, I'm bringing the ghetto to their side of town. It's not the opposite, right? Like, this is yeah. this is something I'm bringing in. And I mean, like, he, so he moves, like, on the same street as the prime minister, it and I don't know if you know anything. We're going to talk. This becomes wow. a big part of the story. But Tough Gong is what they call his compound, and it's just down the street from the Big Brass in Jamaica. Yeah. Okay. And guess who he hangs out with? A bunch of Rastafarians and a bunch of people who are not supposed to really be on this side of the island, right? Yeah. So he's sure. he's mixing up the social dynamics to a way that is. Very unsettling. Yeah. I didn't know that these dynamics were what existed in Jamaica. It's uh, really important to understand any of this. During this period, in the days leading up to the Smile Jamaica concert, he's getting wind that the JLP is pissed. So they hire, quote, a loose confederation of gang members, and they call them the Echo Squad. And they're PNP-affiliated. And this is important. We're going to talk about that later. But they're supposed to be guarding Tough Gong. Okay. December 3rd, two days before the big show, in the back of Tough Gong, which is his compound, he's built this recording studio. So the whalers are all together. They brought in all these people. They are working on a version of I Shot the Sheriff, and they're trying to incorporate a horn section. Bob is getting a little annoyed at the repetitive horn noises. So he walks out of the recording studio area and over to the kitchen to get a grapefruit. I like his taste of fruit. As he does that, up the driveway come two white Datsun cars. First anomaly, I just told you, they had the Echo Squad. The Echo Squad was supposed to be, there's these concrete. There's a concrete wall and there's these gates. 
and they had been at the gates. For some reason, when these white Datsun cars pull up, there are no guards around. At the same time, while Bob is in the kitchen getting grapefruit, Rita Marley, Bob's wife, is leaving the house in her Volkswagen. And as she gets up to the gate from the residential side, she has to stop because there's another car coming in. That other car is a white Datsun. And as that car passes, a gunman shoots at her from the passenger seat of the other Mm. car. The bullet comes into the car and grazes across her scalp. So blood, I mean, imagine that. Bullet across your scalp, blood everywhere, right? She's alive, bloody. Meanwhile, inside the compound, the horn players are still struggling to fit in on this song. The band is starting and stopping. And suddenly someone looks up, and this is how it's described in the oral history. All of a sudden, you see a hand come through the door, around the door, and start firing a thirty-eight. The exact number of gunmen who came leaping out, guns blazing, is subject to controversy. There could have been as many as seven or eight armed with machine guns and pistols, some reportedly containing homemade bullets. Now, if you really want to get into the first-hand accounts of this, this oral history has all these people that were in the room talking about it. I'm just going to give you the basic notes. We don't, we don't have to get Sweet. too deep. Okay. Basically, most of them go running out of that practice room and end up in a bathroom. And they're like hiding in a bathtub, doing what they can to lay low, thinking that at any moment someone is going to just come in the door and finish them all off. And in these accounts, one thing the musicians say is that as it's happening, they keep trying to figure out why, right? So I find this really interesting because when we hear this story now, we sort of just assume that everybody knows that they're after Bob, right? Because I've, I've done all this setup. None of these guys are thinking that way. So in this oral history, it's really interesting to listen to these guys say even now when they're being interviewed, could this be like one voice in the oral history says, that there were multiple people in this group who had gambling problems. And so as it's happening, this particular guy assumes that this was like a tactic from a bookie. Remember, like I said, Bob is in Grapefruit Town trying to eat in the kitchen. He's not with the rest of the group. So when people want to question intentions and motives of the gunmen, they point to this. Because by all reports, the gunmen enter or, or find Bob, I think, in the kitchen. And at that point, the only other people in the kitchen are two Dons. Don Kinsey, who's the Whalers guitarist. I guess he had left the studio after Bob. And then Don Taylor, who had just gotten to the house right before this all goes down. And he's Bob's manager. He'll be his manager to the end. And here's a quote from that same biographer I mentioned earlier in the oral history. Don Kinsey says that the gunman came in with his automatic weapons, looked at Bob, and obviously could have killed him because Bob was just standing there in a corner. And then instead of aiming the weapon and shooting Bob, he aimed in a sort of vague general direction, and he very lightly grazed Bob across the chest. The bullet then lodged in his left arm. Obviously, Don Kinsey insists that if this man had wanted to kill Bob, he would have. Jeff Walker, the Island Records publicity guy I mentioned earlier, says this, there were bullet holes everywhere in the kitchen. So, interesting thing about Jeff Walker. Jeff Walker had met videographers at the airport when this is going down because they had come into town to film smile because they want to use it for publicity for Bob, obviously. Okay. And so he's got these guys and they get a call while they're at the airport that there's been an attack on Bob. So they show up. So this is a reflect. He walks through and what's crazy. And I think it's in the Netflix doc. They have, I think they have their cameras with them. So you can actually see what he describes here. Like they walk through the house with cameras Wow. After this happens. So 
this is his quote. There were bullet holes everywhere, in the kitchen, the bathroom, the living room, floors, ceilings, doorways, and outside. I was there a half hour after the shooting before all the blood had been cleaned up, and there's just no question that if there was going to be carnage, there could have been carnage. So weird. After all those bullet holes, here are the injuries. Rita, grazed in the head, but okay. The gunman shot Marley, but in his chest and arm. Don Taylor, the manager, was shot in the legs and torso, and a band employee named Louis Griffiths took a bullet to his torso as well. But then, all these dudes bounce. They disappear. Seven gunmen, huge amount of weapons and ammunition, an ambush on a peace-loving pot smoker with a bunch of people, none of them having guns, all trying to learn horn parts, and you're telling me nobody's going to die? So that's why... This story has always been ripe with what we do best at Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, rumor and innuendo. So, yeah. Bob goes to the hospital because he's injured for sure. And he really should probably stay out of the spotlight. In the remastered doc, that's one of the only places where they touch on this. Most things you read about this, they basically just say, and then Bob still did smile. But in that document, that documentary, they spend some time saying that Bob did not want to go near Smile and that he has to be convinced into it. Well, in fact, they tell a story that he's at his house looking off the mountain and can see the festival and they still have to send like public safety people up to him to convince him that it's safe for him to go, which is interesting, right? Because it doesn't fit the image we want to have of Bob. Right, right. But he's he's had a scary incident. So he agrees finally to go and do one song. There's 80,000 people at this festival. It's huge. One song? Look at that. This comes after five hours of the show already rolling. There were other acts. Some stuff I read made it sound like it was never really supposed to be that heavy on the Bob. But a lot of stuff makes it sound like it was just a Bob Marley show, so it's a little unclear. But at this point... I guess there's no guarantee whether or not Bob's really going to show up. So he finally says, I'll come and do one song. When he steps on the stage, he's able to show the crowd where he was wounded. Right? And he'll go from playing one song to playing for more than an hour. And it's by doing this, in my opinion, that he becomes a legend. Interesting. I mean, let me illustrate what I mean by reading the YouTube comments under this damn video, which, of course, is in the show notes if you want to go watch it. This is like a YouTube comment from three months ago. Today, we don't have brave leaders like this guy, those who risk their lives to send the message to the masses. One love, Bob Marley. Here's another one. When you are a righteous man, when the people love you, when you survive an assassination attempt and your wife checks herself out of the hospital to stand by you as you walk to the people through music... Then you can start off your song list with war because you are Bob Marley. I mean, like, think about it. These people are like, yeah, sweet groove, bro. <laughs> it's I mean, so much it, bigger than that now. Right. You can, you know, it's like the idea that you can go and buy like the Nirvana shirt or the Rolling Stones t-shirt at Target or whatever. I've been selling Bob Marley t-shirts since, you know, the 1980s. It's like a brand of itself based on the the lifestyle or the the music or just the marijuana culture. Right. So Phil and I were talking about this last week. I was in a memorabilia store in a mall in Midwestern America in the last couple of weeks, 
And there's like wall size posters of Bob Marley that you can still buy. And like th- that's iconic for dorm rooms and you know, first apartments and stuff for people. It doesn't of, of, work for, you know, the fifty something set. Right. <laughs> But I'm saying, like, there is this... It, it, I think that still is a thing among a subset of folks. It's not like something that has gone away because Bob Marley is... You could have a Bob Marley poster and not necessarily care about the music because Bob Marley is like Shay. He's a revolutionary. Yeah, it's true. The music's undeniable. Yeah. I mean, the music's great. But I think if this had not happened, it might have faded out. It left Jamaica for, like, you know, Europe... And then eventually came back over here. Like reggae kind of bounced a little bit, like, you know, based on like who it was, who was influencing at the time. Well, and so here's my other thing. If he had, if the assassination attempt had happened and then he had just cut and run and not shown up for smile, would we still see the influence of, of Jamaican music and rock and roll to the degree that we do? And I think you could argue that we might not. Because I think it is not just the assassination attempt, but I think it's the return from the assassination. I mean, let me put it biblically, right? The the timetable's off a little bit, but Jesus is killed, and then he rises from the dead. We talked about this last week, but Rastafarianism is rooted in the Bible. Yeah, and I had to learn about it, about Rastafarianism, just to because I was completely ignorant about it. Cause my daughter asked me what the flying spaghetti monster was. And she was like, is this really a thing for another thing? And then she asked me what stuff. And I was like, you know, I can't even really describe this at all, you know, whatsoever. <laughs> Listen, yeah. parenting teaches us all right. Our kids teach us more than we teach them most of the time. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's interesting because he really does leave the next day. So he does, Smile Jamaica, and the next day he gets out of the country and moves to London. And he's gone for years. Wow. He went on exile after that. That's yeah. interesting. The next day, not just like, you know, by the end of the year. He is scared. And I, you don't hear that part of the story very often. That part of the story is a very much brushed over. I think it's important. I think it makes him much more human. Does he go back? He does go back. He gets convinced to go back to do another benefit concert by 78 or so. So wow. he's, he's not gone for that long, but he does cut and run. And I think if he had cut and run two days earlier and not done Smile, I really do wonder what rock and roll would be like if we would hear this incredible reggae influence and so much. But you know what we haven't answered? We haven't answered who the hell did this. Who tried to shoot Bob? Yeah, who sent the gunman? And yeah. the, the truth of the matter is we really don't know. There's a lot of theories. In the research, the mainstream answer is the JLP. That's the obvious one. Eyewitnesses say they saw cars return to a JLP garrison. Uh, there's, but remember, the island is controlled by PNP. So, of yeah. course, you're going to hear, oh, the JLP. There's this off-sided story that there was this neighbor. If you want to get into some Bob, I mean, this is like other Bob Marley rock and roll bedtime story stuff. But, you know, he's, he's married to Rita the whole time. Yep. But he's got a lot of other women. And there was this neighbor. Like, one of them is Miss World. And she literally had just gotten back on the island the day the assassination attempt happens. So she's not at Tough Kong. But she had been the person who had gone with her, like as her, I don't know, like sort of like her escort or like her manager or something. I don't know if it was in an official capacity, is Bob's neighbor and friend. The, the neighbor had just come back 
had landed in Jamaica, gone to her house, taken a shower, gone over to Tough Gong to see Bob in the band because they were all pals. Yeah. And she's in the house when this happens. And there is huh. there is this thing she has said the entire time that she hears one of the band members say that it is basically people from the JLP. Like he yells when they bust in the room. Wow. No, that's not that doesn't confirm jack shit. Like that's I, like I, three levels away from being accurate in any way that you would hold up in court. Well, for for me, it's like oh, there's just so many layers to it that it could be just kind of anything. It could be anything. So remember, I said there's one guy in the band who thought that the gambling debts were being settled. The, yeah, there yeah. is actually a story that Bob had a close friend who was a soccer player. This is bizarre. They talk about this in the Netflix doc. A soccer player who had gotten into some kind of scam around horse racing. So we're going two sports deep. <laughs> he himself <laughs> is a soccer player, but he's betting or doing some sort of throwing horse races or something. And he gets over his head with money, like he's getting money from Bob. The story's very convoluted. So this could have been some sort of scare tactic, something like that. Um, and then there is the fact that when Rita went to leave the house that night, there were no guards at the gate. Remember I said that? Yeah, there was no guards. And There's the guards no, yeah. were supposed to be P and P. So there is this other line of thinking that this could have been an inside job by the P and P to frame the JLP. Yeah. Or did the JLP like go and take all the stuff from They take the guards like out? The, yeah. Yeah, move the guards and like take part of the meds i don't know you seem like you would just take all of it but what, no what's so weird is that no one was killed the more you read about this the weirder that is why do all this unless it was some sort of scare tactic or frame job if you're the jlp and you really want to not make bob marley alleged like you it doesn't make sense to make him more legendary by giving him this opportunity to survive an assassination attempt yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you need to kill him. So did it, but it doesn't, like, it doesn't, it's not like somebody threw something at the gunman. And, or, you know, there was some super heroic effort made to stop it from happening. They just leave. And that's all accounts say. They just left. And you'll hear any of these, if you get into that oral history and you read people, or hear about people telling you the story of, this is exactly what happened when it happened to me. They all say, that there was a moment where like things went quiet and they thought they were about to die. And then the guys just left. Like okay. they were outside our door. We thought it was about to happen. And then everybody walked out. So like, why? So that's the last theory. The last theory around this is that while it could have might've been in conjunction with the JLP is that it was the CIA. Yeah. I mean, how, how much crazy. It, like, yeah, when, when I said, we're going to talk about Bob Marley's assassination attempt, or the assassination attempt on Bob Marley, I should say. Did you immediately think CIA? I yeah, I, I, because I thought about Cuba and I thought about the uh, Cuban right, Missile Crisis. right. So you know all this, right? So basically, here's the argument, and you you just summed it up. The argument is that the U.S. thought that Jamaica would become the next Cuba, right? And it's a did they think that Jamaica was going to be a pivotal place, like like a you know, Hawaii or, you know, it's like a, 
you know, a little extra landing pad between right. like the Atlantic and going overseas. I don't know. There's so many versions of this story. And if you nose around and look and just Google something crazy like Bob Marley killed by the CIA, you'll see different stuff. One of them, there's this guy named Timothy White who wrote a Marley biography, and he claims that he had he got information from the JLP and PNP officials and US law enforcement that led him to believe that there was a JLP gunman who executed this, but that guy was contracted by the CIA. Yeah. Marley's manager claimed, this is crazy. He claimed that he and Marley were both present at some sort of court hearing. Now, when I read about this, they were basically acting like it was not like a legit court. So I don't know if it was a JLP court or a PNP court, but they claim, Don Taylor, and I don't know if Marley ever claimed this, said he and Marley were at this court in which the gunmen who shot Marley were tried and executed. Now, I don't think that has been validated anywhere. I did not see very many reports that they were ever caught. But I have heard that too. I have heard that too. Now, he says, he says that before they killed him, one of the guys who did the job claimed that it was done for the CIA and they were paid in cocaine and guns. You know, that's how I like to pay independent contractors, too. It makes sense. <laughs> uh, but the stories have gotten even crazier than this. How? Well, listen, do you know the name Bill Oxley? So let, let's talk Florida? about I don't know. Let's talk Maybe. about how Bob Marley actually dies. Bob Marley dies from melanoma. Yeah, he has cancer. He has cancer. So I, like you, and I think I'd be very interested to hear from people who listen to this episode who have a casual understanding of Bob Marley and not like a super fan one, if they also thought Bob Marley was assassinated. Yeah. Because I do think that's the lore. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, he like, didn't like, no, die from cancer. Thought that he, yeah, that, not that he died from cancer. Thought that he was killed by a government. I think if you had like pushed me hard, I would have said I thought he was killed by the Jamaican government. Right. So, so he dies. And then like in the intervening time, there has been this thing that crops up. And I think... And it's hard to trace exactly where it starts or anything. I don't think anybody really knows. It gets more legs on the internet, of course. This idea that there is a guy who was a retired officer of the CIA named Bill Oxley, who, and this is always convenient, made a deathbed confession. And this gets new life all the time. It got new life in 2017 when the very disreputable website called Your Newswire, please check what you're sharing on your Facebook feed, Boomer, posted a version of this story saying that a 79-year-old retired officer of the CIA, Bill Oxley, has made a series of stunning confessions since he was admitted to Mercy Hospital in Maine on Monday and told he has weeks to live. Right? Because that's what you do. You're like, I'm about to die, but let me just really put myself in the spotlight for these last few weeks. He claims he committed 17 assassinations through the American government between 74 and 85, including Bob Marley. Oh my gosh. 17? That's like a Brad Pitt movie. That's that's not even realistic. According to the article, Oxley first confessed that the shooting of Bob Marley in Kingston, Jamaica in 1976 was a CIA assassination attempt and then said that the agent himself had followed up by tricking the singer into injecting himself with cancer viruses. So Uh, they then started to take credit for the cancer. Oh my god. This is from this article, which let me just say this article has been debunked, but 
uh, we're here to talk about rumor and innuendo, so we can talk yeah. about conspiracy theories. According to Mr. Oxley, he used press credentials to gain access to Bob Marley during his Blue Mountains retreat, introduced himself as a famous photographer working for the New York Times, and gave Bob Marley a gift. Here's a quote. I gave him a pair of Converse All-Stars, size 10, and when he tried on the right shoe, he screamed, ouch! That was it. This is like literally how it's quoted. Uh, ouch! O-U-U-U-C-H. His life was over right then and there. The nail in the shoe was tainted with cancer viruses and bacteria. If it pierced the skin, which it did, it was good night, nurse. And oh my gosh. That is, did they get so... a high school creative writing class to write this article? What? Yeah, it's like somehow we're able to inject him with cancer virus eating monsters. Good night, nurse. Good night, nurse. Yeah, it's just totally weird. That that story's ridiculous, right? But every once in a while, this will get shared. And at some point, like within a year of this particular website publishing this story, yeah. Busta Rhyme started tweeting it. <laughs> Do you remember this? So yeah. It was like a whole brief moment on the internet where everybody freaked out because Busta Rhymes and a couple other rappers were talking about this and tweeting it like it was real. Yeah, yeah. I remember it because Busta Rhymes. That's why. I, here's the thing. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I don't necessarily think the CIA did this. But, but we also just talked for an hour about corrupt governments and governments hiding things and blaming things on other parts of the, you know, their island. Yeah. Why? Oh, if yeah. the CIA killed Bob Marley, of course they're going to make sure Snopes.com publishes something that discredits Bill Oxley. Oh, nope. No Bill Oxley here. I mean, like, anytime you look up Bill Oxley, it's like, that's a fake name. We checked it on the CIA database. Really? Who? Who checked it on the CIA database? How do you have access to such a, such a database? Tell me. Of course we... I mean, maybe I've watched too much television, but... It seems to me that we do not have a public accounting of every CIA agent that we could publicly check to verify these things. Right, because they have to be quiet. They have to be anonymous. And it makes sense to me also since we know that there have been things of lesser degrees that have come out about the government relationship to music in other countries and mm -hmm. benefit concerts in other countries that we know are politically motivated. I will say, if you've not heard the Pineapple Street podcast about the Scorpions, I think it's not all that rewarding in the end, but <laughs> there's a lot of great history in the middle. And in the middle, they do a whole episode on some verified, 100% true stuff that the CIA did in terms of, I think it was like Nina Simone and Louis Armstrong and stuff, right? And putting them yeah. in different countries. And it was all a play to curry favor in different countries with different governments and this sort of thing. So we know they'll do this sort of thing. It's not crazy to me to think that at some point they thought Bob Marley might garner a lot of power in the country. The thing is, it doesn't feel like Bob Marley was the problem. I mean, he was sitting in the middle of the problem, but I, I'm a little unclear on what, how removing the, the American government removing him would have fixed instability in Jamaica. Yeah, I mean, is it because he's Elvis? Is it because of what he's doing is controversial? Right. Or is it like, is right. that it? Yeah, it's just the power of, hey, he, this guy can really rally people and we don't know. It's not somebody we can control. I mean, I don't know. Again, listen, I'm not saying that's what happened, but I'm also not saying that 
you can believe the internet when it tells you the CIA didn't do something like that. It doesn't seem like the right tactic to take either. Thanks, internet. If you want to get involved in the show, you help drive the boat, baby. It's uh, we are the story guys at gmail.com. And our website is wearethestoryguys.com. You can check us out there. And on Instagram, we're having some fun. Rock and roll bedtime stories on Instagram. And what should people keep doing until next time, Burdock? Keep telling stories, everybody. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.